Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. How are you? Have a seat. Hey, uh, whether you're joining us online or you're right here on campus, I just want to say welcome. Welcome back. Welcome for the first time. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Britt. I serve here as the lead pastor. And uh, for about the next 30 to uh, 90 minutes, I'm going to be up here talking. So just kidding. Um, so, so glad if you're a guest. It's, we're really uh, stoked that you've, that you've chosen to come and worship with us today. You know, when it comes to any crisis in your life or any struggle or any spiritual battle or any conflict, even if you fall down in the back of the stage here, there are two ways to handle those struggles. The first way is our way. That is to use our own human wisdom, our own human strength, and our own ingenuity. Do you know what the second way is? Well, you're in church. Well, if you said God's way, you're wrong. Here's the way. It'd be nice if you could pull me into town. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a system of self-defense that I developed over two seasons of fighting in the octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your sensei. Bow to your sensei! Okay. Now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Give me your best shot. All right, that was pretty good. Okay, now watch this, everybody. Grab my arm, the other arm, my other arm. Okay, now watch this. I'm just gonna break the wrist and walk away. Break the wrist, walk away. Jeez. Okay, it's just that simple. Now, I want you to kick me. Come on, kick me. Okay, do it again. Do it again. Ouch. Okay, you'll block it every time. Have a seat. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're gonna learn these things first off. Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more flying solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're gonna learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn about self-respect. Do you think anybody thinks I'm a failure because I go home to Starlight Night? Forget about it. Now, 
for only $300. You can sign up right now for my eight-week program. Okay. Some of you are like, I, have, I don't get that at all. From the laughter, I can tell many of my people are here. You're Napoleon Dynamite fans, so thank you for getting it with me. So what do you think? I mean, just for, for only $300, in eight weeks you can learn how to fight the Rex Kwando way. If only it were that simple, right? So when it comes to the battles we face, we can either fight them our way or God's way. You actually were right in the beginning, those of you that are brave enough to answer. It just so happens that we have a real-life example right here in the Bible of people doing just this, uh, fighting God's way, and we're continuing our study, the life of Moses. And today we're going to see how God was teaching the Israelites to fight their battles. And then we're going to bring that forward, like we usually do, to our day and time. We're going to talk about how that applies to you and me. So if you're just joining us and you haven't been part of this story, the Israelites, 3,500 years ago, were enslaved to the Egyptians for almost or around 400 years, and now they're free. But the challenges of surviving in the Sinai Desert are many. We've seen that they had to find food and water, and they needed direction from God. And now, a little over a month into their journey, they now have marauding tribes uh, dogging them. And this is going to be their first military battle, but it won't be their last. And in an Exodus 17, which um, Hannah read part of uh, just a moment ago, they are in the shadow of Mount Sinai. And in the area of Rephidim, where they are assaulted by these people called the Amalekites. And it's one of the first mentions, there's a few of those in this text, so I just want to like stop along the way and point out who these people are. So first of all, in your notes, uh, the Amalekites are a nomadic, desert-dwelling people who held a deep-seated grudge against the people of Israel. And, and if you're familiar with other Bible stories like Agag, he was an Amalekite, and probably Esther's foe, Haman, also came from the same uh, tribe. And you know, life is hard enough in the Sinai Desert. It's not a safe place in any way, and the Amalekites are this fearsome tribe. In Deuteronomy 25:17, it talks about what they were doing to the children of Israel. Remember, Deuteronomy says, what the Amalekites did to you along the way when they came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. So the Amalekites, they attacked the stragglers, the sick, the frail, the old, the pregnant, um, whoever was vulnerable and couldn't keep up. And this conflict that we're going to read about today is either a full-fledged, you know, frontal assault on Moses and his people, or maybe Moses is just fed up with the way that they've been dogging them, and he's making a stand. And then in this same text, we're going to meet another person. It's the first mention in the Bible of Joshua. You're probably familiar. Many of you are with that name. But Joshua eventually is going to become Moses' successor. You may know him as that. And later, he's one of the faithful spies that Moses sends into the land to scope it out. This, this first mention is so matter-of-fact that the people of that day, they must have already known who Joshua was. He must have already been looked at as kind of a military leader. 
In verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So catch what is said here. Moses says, tomorrow you go fight and I'll stand on a hill. And then Joshua picks, handpicks some men who can fight. And sure enough, the next morning in verse 10, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her, two, two other new people to us, Aaron, a little bit familiar, went to the top of the hill. So uh, Aaron, you may have already recognized, he is the brother of Moses. And uh, he was his spokesperson and partner um, when they confronted Pharaoh. But her... Uh, first mention, loyal ally of Moses, who's left in charge later, we'll see, when uh, Aaron and Moses ascend uh, Mount Sinai. Josephus says he's the brother-in-law of Moses, but we don't know for sure. So then this whole scene is one of the, one of the more unusual events we read about in our Bible. In verse 11, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. And then whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So Moses wasn't joking when he said to Joshua, you go fight and I'll be on the hill watching, right? So how many of you have ever held out your hands for a really long time? You've had, I remember like in high school football, they used to make us do these circles. Do they still do this? And you just keep going and going and going. Then you did them reverse. And you think like that's really easy. But if you do that for a few minutes, your shoulders start to burn. How long can you really do that? And so Moses is also holding up his staff. And the people know that this piece of wood has played a role in their deliverance in the past. It was used during the plagues, in the parting of the sea. And then the first time, Moses and the people discover water that comes out of a rock. And as long as Moses is holding his staff up in the air... The Israelites prevail. And whenever his hands drop, the Amalekites gain the upper hand. No pun intended. Thank you for the one person that got that. Thank you. Napoleon Dynamite fan too? Okay. So the battle goes on for a really long time until sunset. And in verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remain steady until sunset. So it's funny here to me that Moses is mentioned as the one growing weary, not the men who are fighting. But it's teaching us something. Now this picture, now picture this, the, the image of this fierce battle going on in the valley floor. And Moses, along with Aaron and Hur, are on top of a hill, and they're observing this battle, and they're holding his staff and his arms up. And in real time, they're seeing its effect on the battle. As Moses fatigues and Aaron and Hur assist Moses by finding him a rock to sit on, then holding his arms up, and by the end of the day, in verse 13, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then after the victory, in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So God tells Moses to record this event and to assure that Joshua knows about it 
which is an indication that Joshua is going to be an important figure in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then God promises to blot out the Amalekites. And here, in the original language, there's a little play on words. God is saying, write this event down so that it's not forgotten, and I will erase the Amalekites. Then in verse 16, it adds, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So here you see that God views the Amalekites' actions against the people of God in direct opposition to him and against his authority and the, 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 against the throne of the Lord, not just the Israelites. And we see that God will never allow people or principalities or anything to thwart his redemptive plan that he has for the world. And in response to this victory, Moses builds an altar to worship God. In verse 15, he builds an altar and he calls it, The Lord is my banner. He names this altar on purpose. The Lord is my banner. A banner is like the colors of an army in a war. It's a rallying point. It's where the army or the soldiers can regroup. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord banner. In other words, God is our rallying point in the battle. So, let's just recap. Great story, right? Fun to read. Now, I don't know about you, but I can picture this whole thing in my mind. If I picture myself being an Israelite, at once both hopeful and anxious, uh, because for the first time in 400 years, me and the people, our people, that have been enslaved, uh, we're free. We're free from the bondage of our old life. But here we are in the desert, free but with plenty of danger yet and plenty to worry about. Yet for once, for once in your life, you have the freedom to choose. You have a free will. Just a few months ago, you had no free will. You had no choice. You were slaves. And now you have these very real dangers in your world to face, but you get to choose how you will face them. You get to choose what you will do with your time. You get to choose what you'll do in the morning and in the evening. And you'll get to choose how to face what is in front of you. And what is it that's in front of you? You have these Amalekites who are picking off your weak and vulnerable. The people you're losing are your neighbors. They are people that you live next to. They are family. They are loved ones. It's your grandma. It's your mom. It's your sister. It's your friend who was healthy but caught the flu on this trip, on this journey, and now is moving slower and lagging behind. And something has to be done. But what? You're not a warring people. You don't have a trained army. You can make bricks, but you're not skilled at war. You're shepherds and you're tradesmen. So you have to feel pretty helpless, scared. And all that is wrapped up in the the responsibility that you feel for these people that are so loved by you, even your family. And then there's this guy that you've put your trust in, mostly. Mostly, yeah. Moses. 
And he makes a command decision that tomorrow morning you're going to stop and you're going to fight. So you spend the night getting ready, doing as much as you can to march out in battle. And then in the morning you go to battle and every once in a while, while you're fighting, you're regrouping, catching your breath, and you look up on the hill and you see Moses raising his staff above his head. And you know, you know the significance of that piece of wood because you've seen it, or you've at least heard of it. You've seen Moses command a plague with it or split the sea or bring water from a rock. And you keep fighting all day, and you can't believe it. At the end of the day, the Amalekites have tucked their tails and run, and you're victorious. So you're elated, and you're relieved. And you know it wasn't just you. God showed up again. This is a great moment in your life. It's going to be a memory. And you're going to want to tell your kids about it. Who will not, they're not here yet, or maybe they won't remember. And they're going to tell their kids. That's the story. So again, what about us today? What does this story have to do with you and me in the Temecula Valley in 2023? What can we learn from this brief moment, but significant moment, in Israel's history? It's kind of a weird passage, I know, and often context will help us in interpreting and applying a passage. But you know, there's no contextual explanation here for why the victory was won or determined by Moses holding up his staff. And and it's not explained. I mean, does it mean that the next time you're in a fight with your wife or your husband, you should hold a stick over your head and be victorious? Uh, You'd probably get arrested for that, so I don't recommend you do that. And others would say uh, it calls for what we in, um, you know, the pastor world or theological world call the Christological approach. Um, Some would go direct and would say, well, Moses... Is uh, his raising his hands foreshadows Jesus on the cross and how salvation comes. And on a hill, his arms are outstretched with two men on each side. But um, I don't mean to offend you. This is just my opinion, but that doesn't work for me. Because first of all, Moses' hands were up, not out. And these two thieves have nothing in common with Aaron and her. And I don't think it helps to have a moralistic approach to this either, that God will save us in battle every time if we just raise our hands. I think the answer here is far less complicated. And as I've said before, I think the key way to interpret Scripture is to interpret it in the way that the people who heard it for the first time would understand it. How would they comprehend what had just happened? So the best question here to ask is, what would the Israelites taken? What would they have taken away from this event? An event that God wanted them to remember, to write it down. And so, how do we apply this today? Well, I think it goes back to what we said at the beginning: that when it comes to the battles we face, we can either fight them our way or God's way. And I believe that this is exactly what God is teaching Moses and the Israelites. So what does it mean to fight, God, fight our battles God's way? Well, first of all, I think I need to say this, even though it's so obvious, it's a given, 
this is in your notes, number one, first you have to recognize you are in a battle, right? I mean, sometimes we don't know. But the Israelites knew because they were under attack with these Amalekites who were picking off their stragglers. In fact, did you know the Apostle Paul talks about how life can be a battle? 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Even Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And you know that that is military language. Overcome means to be victorious, to subdue, or to conquer. Jesus is saying, I have conquered the world. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm in a battle. Sometimes it feels like nothing's easy. Financial, financially sometimes, how many of us haven't had anxiety about paying the bills a certain period in our life or what the future holds for us? Or in this day and time, holding our family together and keeping our kids focused on God when so many things are pulling families apart. And we think about our kids when they're younger. Some of you have your kids there in elementary school or whatever, and you're concerned about the things that they face. Or, you know, as they get older, too, you never stop worrying about your kids. I'm at an age now where, like, a lot of my friends are getting sick. They're facing battles, health battles. Some of my friends have passed on. So life can be like a battle. And then there's all the relationship battles that we have that we don't invite, but they happen. The expectations of people, the realities for me of leading a church or anything, it creates tension in relationships. And the truth is, in the last eight years that I've been a lead pastor here, I've lost longtime friends just basically because I'm in the role of a pastor here. Then there's just my own battles, right? My own personal struggles. I bet you have them too. Sometimes life feels like a battle zone, doesn't it? Um, Pat Benatar saying uh, love is a battlefield, <laughs> but um, which it can be, uh, but life feels like a battle zone sometimes. Anybody? Raise of hands. Anyone? Sometimes my life feels like a battle. Okay. Some of you, man. Thank you for not making, making me feel alone. Some of you, your life is awesome, so I'm glad for you right now. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you are a Christian, there's a big target on your back. And if you're not alert and wary of how easily you can become a casualty, then I hope I can open your eyes today. You and I can be so easily picked off, especially when we're straggling. You know, there are three kinds of people in the world. There, uh, there are those who see what's going on and truly are interested in doing something about it. There are those who see what's going on and they're not going to do anything about it except talk about it. And then there are those that have no idea that anything is going on. <laughs> That's why I say we have to recognize we're in a battle. So as long as you realize that as long as you live in this imperfect world and you're not in heaven, <clears throat> you're going to be in a battle. And if you know that, you're one step ahead.
The Apostle Paul, then, to me, is our go-to about how to do battle God's way. And here's his, his advice. Starts with number two. Have total dependence on God, not yourself. Total dependence on God, not yourself. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's how we fight our battles God's way. Sometimes we're in a battle and there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. And God says, don't do anything about it. He says, like in Psalm 42.10, be still. Be still and know that I am God. And that's what the Israelites had to do when the Egyptian army was bearing down on them, when they needed food and water and direction through a cloud and fire. And other times we're part of the equation. And in every case, whether you just need to sit still or take some action in obedience to God, or just because it's the wise thing to do. We are totally dependent on God. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You know, when the Israelites had had enough of the Amalekites, it seems to me that even though the battle was being waged in the valley, they also realized that the victory was on the hill. And how many times have you and I found ourselves in a place where we think, you know, I do not have the strength to do this. And you've reached deep into your faith, and God held you together. And then how many times have you thought, oh, this is a no-brainer, I got this all the way, no problem, and then somewhere along the line you realize, I can't handle it. And then you turn to God. And by the way, do you know how to know whether you're depending on God or not? You pray about it. You're praying about it. See, you can pray without depending on God, but you can't depend on God without praying. The Bible doesn't say Moses is praying in the battle, but he is acknowledging God's presence and power. And he is certainly in a posture of prayer, raising his hands. And he is clearly appealing to God in doing that for God to show up. And isn't it interesting? Think about this. Why is it that, in the, in the, that the battle is going on, but the main story here is what's happening on the hill? The victorious life for the Christian is one of total dependence on God. So whether, uh, whatever battle you're facing, depend totally on him. Number three, know who your enemy is. Know who your enemy is. When Paul talked about spiritual warfare, he was very clear on who the battle is ultimately with. Verse 11, Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Whose schemes? Say it with me. The devil's schemes. For our struggle, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you know that the Bible says that there is a real being that seeks to thwart God's redemptive plan? And he directly opposes God and his plans. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is Jesus Setting up the contrast, I have come that they have life and have it to the full. 
And this being, the devil, works through deception. John 8, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, for the Israelites, it was very clear who their enemy was in, uh, in the valley of Rephidim. It's the ones that have been picking off their loved ones, the stragglers. They didn't need to, an imag- to, to have an imaginary enemy. They didn't need to figure out who it was. But when the Bible uses warfare language, it's not a license for every one of us to turn every person that doesn't agree with us into God's enemy. The enemy is not the person who takes three seconds to respond to the green light in front of you. The enemy is not the Democrats or the Republicans. The enemy is not your husband or your wife. And it's not your boss that puts too much work on you. Those are all real things. And it's not the believer who thinks differently about a passage of Scripture or doctrine. If we're not clear who the enemy is, then we're going to hurt ourselves and God's causes because we are chasing our proverbial tails. Knowing who your enemy is allows you to be ready for his strategy. And we know that Satan uses attraction more than he does fear. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Chances are, in all of our lives, there are real enemies, real dangerous enemies that don't look like enemies. They could look like friends. They could be attractive. They could be culturally accepted. And in truth, many of us are our own worst enemies. And our battles are more rooted in our own insecurities and fears. Our own propensity to confirmation bias and crowd think. To allow ourselves that the battle can be won through other means other than God's power. To start doubting God's word because it's in conflict with what is in vogue today. To overlay my own bias and preference onto the scripture. Or to think so much of our human wisdom and intelligence that if we can't figure it out, if we don't have an answer, then certainly it must not be true. And I need to reject it. A Christian who is unclear on who the enemy is is totally useless in the battle. Actually, they're more likely dangerous because They're going to fire on the wrong people. They're going to focus on the wrong things. They're going to follow the wrong leaders. So realize who your enemy is. Number four, be spiritually prepared. Being physically prepared is important for battle, obviously, or anything. Preparation in general is, but it's not the only thing. And it's doubtful, as I mentioned earlier, that the Israelites had much in the way of battlefield skills. Maybe some of them received training through conscription or, you know, certainly Joshua, you know, probably did, but it's like, you know, that's, I'm just speculating there. When Paul writes about spiritual warfare, he uses metaphoric language to, to encourage being prepared. That is, and if we're going to withstand the devil's strategies, and take the battle to where it belongs, not against people, but in the spiritual realm, he continues in Ephesians 6, verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. So just think about it. It's like 
We, don't, we have to take it all. And he mentions it so that when the day of evil comes, you may be, you'll be able to stand your ground. Isn't that what you want to be able to do? When that day comes, when the battle comes to you, don't you want to be able to stand and not get clobbered? You know, two great people died this weekend, Tim Keller um, and Jim Brown, NFL great. And I started watching clips of him uh, running back for the Cleveland Browns way back in the day, actor, activist, um, and I just really love watching him plow over people. He didn't have a lot of finesse. And I think about me trying to tackle him, and I just want to cry. I think about it. That was random, just like about standing your ground and being firm. But how do you do it? How do you stand firm? With the belt of truth. So it begins with the truth of Scripture, right? You're never going to be able to stand firm unless you, that you have a grasp on Scripture and you stand upon it where that foundation is strong and it's firm in contrast to having a slippery faith that is at the whim of whatever is popular at the moment or whatever feels good. Buckle that around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness. You know, there is a, there's a protection that comes just through living righteously and not exposing ourselves to things that are going to undermine our faith. And then our feet are fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the gospel of peace. That is, it's the gospel that takes me to the places that I need to go in the world. It, it's, it's the thing that, that I take to work with me. The gospel takes me to work, whether you're a pastor or a plumber, whether you're a mom or a dad, a grandpa, a grandma, wherever God takes you, like the gospel should be the forefront thing in our mind and being prepared for what? The battles that God has. And then the shield of faith, which, you know, like to use a shield, you put trust in that, right? And so often when the battles come, we drop shield. And we take on arrows that are unnecessary because we don't trust that our faith is going to stand up. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And do you know that that word used there is not a big hacking sword, but it's a dagger that needed to be strategically placed? And it is the only offensive weapon in this list. So being able to handle God's word in a way that, that you're, you're skilled at it is one of the things that is going, that's going to prepare you for battle. And if you go into battle and you've never used your, your offensive weapon, what's going to happen? You can't wait until the middle of the battle to find a verse. You know, oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. Judas went out and hanged himself. That's not going to work for you. And then pray, as we mentioned, in the Spirit. Notice how Paul puts this. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, all kinds. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. That's what it means to be prepared. And now I think that the number of casualties today in Christian marriages and families, the financial struggles that we have, the way churches are struggling and losing focus on the mission God has given us, it's because we're unaware and we're unprepared. The battles are coming. They're going to keep coming. 
You know, it'd be up to us. It's up to us to be prepared for them. So invest in your spiritual life. Or you and your family are sitting ducks. Fifthly, depend on each other. You know, it's no accident in the, in the narrative of this battle that a number of people are mentioned. It's Moses, Joshua, his soldiers, Aaron, and her. And the image here is that Moses wearies, Aaron and her help him by holding up his arms and giving him a seat. That's really powerful when you think about what is happening there. Because Moses is their leader, but he's incapable of leading alone. In fact, that's exactly what his father-in-law is going to tell him next week, uh, Jethro, in Exodus 18, which we're going to be looking at next Sunday. And I, can, I want to especially point out to you what God wants us to see here is how every leader, every leader, especially spiritual leaders, they need an Aaron and a Hur. Those who will stand with you and lift up their arms because you can't do it alone. And I am so grateful for the people that God has put in my life to do that. My wife, Cindy, uh, our board, our staff, many of you, some of you I don't even know, and you're like an Aaron and her to the spiritual leaders in this church, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. The other message you can't miss here overall is this, we need each other. Here's Moses, one of the greatest leaders in all of the Bible, and he can't do it. We need each other. And that's why we work so hard here, why we put such an emphasis on being connected with each other, why we have life groups, because none of us are meant to be alone. And if you look at the, at the, um, the way Jesus discipled people, it wasn't just in big teaching. He spent so much time with a smaller group of people. And what did they do? They served together, but also they, they, they talked. They discussed spiritual things and, and, and talked about them in reference to life. So, I mean, like, get in a life group or make sure at least you have a group of people that you can, that you can do that with because that is, that is the Jesus way of discipling and we don't want anybody to be out there straggling all by themselves. We need each other. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And uh, the last thing, when you've battled God's way, once you're, once you're through it all, number six, give God all the glory. You know, once again, the Israelites find themselves in a pickle, and they are wholly dependent upon God. And then when the victory is complete, Moses builds an altar. Did you catch that? They stop and worship, just like when they escaped the Egyptians at the Sea of Reeds and they got on the other side, they stopped and worshipped there, right? They had the song by the sea. Moses stops the people and he says, you got to go to church now. He builds an altar and they come together and they declare that the Lord is their banner. The Lord is their gathering point. He is their rallying point. And I thought... It appropriate today, since this is our third Sunday of the month, that we would, we would do that together by taking communion. So...
If you, uh, if you didn't get one of these, ushers are available. If you just raise your hand, you can get a little communion set. And you know, this, the battles that we face, we must depend upon God, right? But you know, the, the biggest battle of all is already won. That we're separated from God. And God desperately pursued us through his son, Jesus. And he gave his life. And it's, it's nothing that we did. We can't earn our way into it. We can't battle our way into it. We can't just be strong and be good. All of that is insufficient. But what Jesus did on the cross is fully sufficient. And this is one of the, the, it is the biggest difference in Christianity compared to every other religion. Every other religion is about us, about you working to gain your God's favor. And in Christianity, it's God that did it. So it's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. It's his work on the cross that makes it possible for us to have eternal life in a relationship with the Creator God. And Jesus was talking to his disciples about that at the Last Supper, and a tradition has come forward that we call communion from that. Broke the bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Everyone eat it. And then he passed the cup, and he said that this cup is a the, the new covenant of my blood. And, and they all drank of it. And then we see in the New Testament, we see that tradition continuing. Paul talks about it in his letters. And then we see it in history too. So that's what we're doing here. So as a church today, I just invite you to think about the ultimate victory that God won for us on the cross. His body broken for you. And his blood shed for you. God, thank you that the victory, all of the victory is yours. And even though we stumble and we straggle and... Um, we're going to lose battles and we're going to see friends and loved ones lose them as well. Spiritual battles and health battles. and Every struggle that comes. But to you, God, to you be all the glory that there's one battle we don't have to fight and is the ultimate battle. The struggle between sin and death that your son stepped into our place as the innocent one and won that victory. The victory over a physical death, but the victory over our spiritual death into eternity. And that that, we can just claim that as a victory. We thank you, God, for that. And we remember, we remember that today. Amen. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. 
We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.